Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Guido Talks, the podcast that brings you all the news and all the top stories and a little bit of behind the scenes gossip from the week on Guido Forks. So without further ado, let's introduce the panel. It's the same panel that we have every week. We've got uh, founder and editor of Guido Forks, Paul Staines here, and reporter Christian Kaugi. My name's Tom Harwood, and this is Guido Talks, the podcast that brings you all the, all the week's gossip, everything you need to know, your roundup at the end of the week. So let's kick off with what everyone has been talking about. We're recording this on Thursday evening, and still there has been no formal declaration for the US presidency, uh, the election of which happened on Tuesday. Um, that didn't stop President Trump declaring that he had won the election on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning for us, uh, though. What, what is, what's everyone's thoughts on this? Well, Tom, I can exclusively reveal that the Guido decision disc is calling it for Biden. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's good news because it means that I won't have to eat a hat, as I, said, as I, as I promised I'd do. I, I'd, I'd eat a MAGA hat if Trump won. And there was a bit, a bit of the night where it was... I was getting a bit dicey as to whether I'd actually have to fulfill that promise. Um, but, but no, it does look pretty conclusively. I mean, Trump would have to win every single state left to declare. And Biden only needs to win one of them. And he's ahead in a couple. So I think, I think that it's pretty clear that by the time this podcast goes out, things will have declared. Um, but I don't want to... I think Trump will carry so. on whinging for a few weeks afterwards, though. You know, he's... he's uh... Not the best of losers. He did say beforehand, the night before, didn't he, that he was a bad loser. <laughs> and God, he really means it. Well, there'll be a really interesting check on this because some of the Senate elections have runoff votes in some of the southern states. So there'll be a runoff vote in, um, I think, a month or so um, where for the, for the Senate race in, um, I, I believe it's in Alabama. And so it'll be interesting to see if Trump, if he... Um, concedes or whatever in the next couple of days. Will he still be campaigning? Will he still want to host rallies and, and other things for other bits of the election? Or will he just sort of count himself out and say, right, that's it. That's my political career done. I think it'll be interesting to follow what he does next, assuming Biden um, pips him to the post tomorrow. I, I just sort of hope that he returns to doing The Apprentice and never mentions it. <laughs> just goes <laughs> on like it. It was a blip. It was a four-year hiatus. Um, Let's remember, we got into this. This is when he was contemplating setting up the Trump News Network, wasn't it? Mm. So now he's now he's uh, complaining that Fox News has gone left wing. He can probably have an excuse to set up the Trump News Network, or he could just swap places with Tucker Carlson, who there's been a lot of speculation <laughs> about, and um, whose monologue we put up on the site on the morning after the election. Um, where he did seem to have some pretty good analysis of what was all going on in these left-behind towns. Um, and it did look like he was slightly pitching perhaps himself for uh, a run for some sort of office or another. So it could be a straight swap um, where Trump starts hosting the Tucker Carlson show. And was something, it, I want to, something I want to clear sorry. up, because Twitter, Twitter's gleeful that we must be crying because Trump lost. Tom, how much money did you have on Biden? I had £3,000 on Biden. Very good. Calgi, who would you have voted for? Uh, I'd, have, I'd have voted for Biden. 
I would not have voted for a Democrat. Uh, you know, I'm not going to start at this stage. I would have probably voted for the Libertarian candidate. And as much as Trump gave me a lot of fun and pleasure watching the world go mad with his game playing, I probably wouldn't have voted for him. So that's all there is to it. <laughs> Did you put any money for this time? Because I know you had a lot of money on Hillary Clinton winning last time, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Let's not go <laughs> I did. I did notice that Farage, who I had to pay ten thousand pounds to four years ago, <laughs> has lost the money, the ten grand, betting on Trump. So, what goes around comes around. Easy come, easy go. Sorry about that, Nigel. I know, I know this, is the, this is the same Farage who in recent days has set up a money investment advice service uh, and has now lost 10k betting on the US election. So uh, maybe to be fair, I don't think that, that was his money. I think he was sponsored to do that and a betting company put up that money for him for him to put his name to. So it um, might be a shrewder investment for him well, himself. Well, let's not, forget, let's not forget that the largest uh, political bet in history was placed by a UK... Uh, you know, person five million uh, quid on Trump winning, and they must uh, they must have on a Trump sore winning. Than really, I'm pretty sure it was a, a, a hell of a. Not, I, I thought, thought it was on a Biden victory. Largest political bets ever, and I'm pretty sure none of them were. You know, people people when they're betting on uh, financial markets are betting on politics as well, aren't they? You know, anyway. Hmm. Um, well, okay, well, we should probably move on to what's been happening on this side of the pond, as much as we could talk about America for a very long time. Um, there was actually quite a consequential vote in Parliament on Wednesday that led us all in Thursday to be put into a national lockdown. Um, how did that vote go down, Paul? It was uh, heavily won, but there were 36, 38 Tory MPs who voted against it, and they could hold their head high. They voted against it for various reasons. It was led by Steve Baker, the uh, perennial rebel. I know he doesn't like that, but he is a perennial rebel. I, I suspect he'll be setting up his COVID research group very soon. Um, and they, uh, I think the consensus amongst the rebels was that they would like to see a cost-benefit analysis, because the feeling is that the economic factors aren't being weighed up. Uh, funny enough, Theresa May has been making this point quite consistently. She suggested that you should put an economist or a business person on the SAGE committee. And I think it was uh, Hancock who knocked her down quite brutally by saying business people aren't scientists. Well, that seems to be a flaw in the design of the, of the uh, decision-making or the informing the decision-making that we aren't taking into account the, the other costs. If you have a load of epidemiologists on board, they'll worry about the epidemiology. But what about uh, you know, the mental health costs? And the costs to people uh, when they lose their jobs are gonna be immense. You know, are we weighing up very well? I don't think we are. I, um... well, here's, here's the thing though. I mean, this is, this is a problem that comes about from a mindset that SAGE is running the country. Sage isn't running the country. Sage shouldn't be running the country. Sage is one advisory committee on epidemiology or, or on um, infection emergencies. Uh, there are other advisory committees, whether it's economics or, or anything else. And actually the point that um, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance made to the Science and Technology Select Committee this week was, no, there aren't 
economists on SAGE, but similarly there aren't epidemiologists on any of the Treasury committees that exist. And the thing is, both of these bodies are meant to feed into number 10, and then number 10 makes the decision. And I think the problem is that the Labour Party has so often tried tried to say that SAGE should be the only body making the decision. And if SAGE says something, then that has to go down. Well, no, the government has to take in views from different people and then make a judgment call. That's the job of a prime minister. I've, all I all I'll say is that, uh, regrettably, because of the uh, US election, I actually managed to sleep through the crucial lockdown two vote. And uh, it appeared I was still dreaming uh, when I did find out the result, because all of a sudden, uh, all my libertarian f- friends were cheering on Theresa May. Uh, <laughs> and it was quite, <laughs> it was slightly topsy-turvy. Well, also, we were... Uh... We were saying that uh, Tony Blair had a very good point the day before. So, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a new world at Guido, my God. <laughs> but no, this was, this, was, this was significant because it was upwards of 10% of the Tory party that rebelled. It was a significant um, proportion of MPs who were um, making a point, really. That Actually, when you bear in mind half the part, half the... Conservative Party is on the government payroll, so to speak. It says the rebellion of the people who had the chance of a free vote without having to resign their jobs was more like 20%, which is, mm. which is indicative that I would, in my heart of hearts, I think about a third of Tory MPs are very sceptical about the efficacy of a second lockdown. Mm. But um, I was speaking to Steve Baker, actually, on, on Wednesday night, and he was saying that there are a lot more people who sort of feel um, very uneasy about this course of action, but are going along with it. And I think if there were to be any hint of an extension to this lockdown, that's where you'd really see something consequential. And actually they were quite um, shrewd in securing in the text of the bill to initiate the lockdown, that it automatically expires after 28 days. So it's, it's in law that this lockdown will expire after 28 days. There'd have to be another parliamentary vote in order to um, create a fresh one, basically. You can't extend the current one. Um, and that would have much more opposition, I feel. I mean, the thing that has lost a lot of people like me, who's most of the time, you know, been happy to go along with what the uh, advisors are, are saying, is that it seemed like within the space of a couple of days, Boris went from saying the tiered system was working to saying actually no it's not working enough we've got to go into a full lockdown and yet this morning uh, uh, on 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 uh, Thursday morning we published uh, figures from London that actually showed that covid cases had fallen in some cases very dramatically in over half of London boroughs the 10 days uh, leading up to the 30th uh, a week ago uh, and so, uh, you know, I'd be extremely concerned if there was any talk about going beyond the 2nd of December. In any case, I think, I think we're, uh, Witty said, and we picked up on it, that the UK was locking down earlier on the curve, given we are, say, behind lagging in the whole process, continental Europe. So uh, we're, we're actually jumping into lockdown faster in, ter- in terms of where the spread of the uh, virus is on the second wave than most European countries. Absolutely. We put up um, a new graph on the website this week that showed actually in terms of the, the case curve, 
we're about half the level of France and, and, and much lower than um, particularly Belgium, which seems to be having again the worst time in Europe. It's had proportionally um, some of the most deaths in the world. It's had more than a thousand deaths per 100,000, whereas we, we've been closer to 500 deaths per um, 100,000. And, and, and yet, obviously, because it's a smaller country, the absolute numbers are smaller and therefore it doesn't get anywhere like the media attention it should do. I think also one of the things about Belgium specifically is for the bulk of the um, for, for the bulk of the crisis through um, the early part of the year, its prime minister was a pro-EU woman, and this absolutely shoots the narrative that oh, women do COVID better because there was this thing about Jacinda Ardern and actually Nicola Sturgeon, who hasn't had a very good pandemic, but for some reason the media like to say that she has, um, are somehow better at, at, at leading their countries through this. I think Belgium conclusively shows that's not true. Um, but anyway, I think that's probably enough COVID to talk about. Um, and there's a slightly new angle here because this... Um, this sentiment that people are sort of fed up of all of these restrictions, that there's a growing sense of unease, has been um, latched onto um, by a very acute um, political operative. Um, Calvi, can you talk us through this? Yes, well, uh, Farage is, is back in UK politics. Uh, he'll be coming uh, back over to the UK in a few days, I imagine, and he is... Uh, um, ready to essentially relaunch the Brexit party, uh, um, which is going to be redesigned uh, to fight against lockdown. And it's a very politically savvy way for Farage to get a foothold back into British politics, because I think um, there's a massive amount of the Tory grassroots that are getting significantly uh, fed up with this, um, of course, there's a slight difference between UKIP and the Brexit parties. There are no longer proportional EU elections to get these stunning national victories on, but there are many local elections coming next year. And if the resentment is hanging around, and particularly if there still seems to be no end in sight by the spring, which is, I think, where everyone's eyes are looking at this point, um, then there will be significant feeling that there needs to be a shake-up and a break of the consensus. Of course, the scenes that our readers most uh, watch most widely in relation to this story was that Richard Tice went on to Sky News to talk about the new party. And bizarrely, Adam Bolton just decided to latch onto this unfounded left-wing conspiracy theory that the Brexit party had never submitted any accounts or spending to the Electoral Commission, which is completely untrue. I can't even remember where this conspiracy came from because a quick search on the Electoral Commission website shows the accounts in full. So it will all be above board. And I think it will uh, capture a significant amount of zeitgeist, especially in Tory circles. He also accused Tice of profiting from it. I mean, I think it's well known that Tice has put his hand in his pocket to a very large degree to fund uh, all these campaigns. So it was uh, uh, dismayed at the kind of uh, direction that Adam's going in. Mm. Absolutely. It's a, it's a rare millionaire who goes into politics to make money. It's sort of something you do to throw all your money away once you've made a bulk, as Richard Tice has on the, in the property market in the last couple of decades. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a very odd suggestion that either him or Farage are in it for the money somehow. 
um, when they could have cashed out a little while ago. Um, but yeah, that will be something interesting to watch. And, and obviously the vast bulk of the British population still, still supports horrifically authoritarian measures on this pandemic, but it is a steady and growing proportion of people who don't. And it's interesting when we come up to these sort of bumper midterm elections in May 2021, where it's a whole load of councils, um, all the metro mayors, Scotland and Wales and London, all in one go. Um, that's going to be quite a seismic political event. And it will be interesting to see how much this new party takes off specifically the Tory vote. Um, but to leave that there, but but sort of move on in a nice segue to that resentment that a lot of people feel towards the establishment and specifically MPs. We're recording this on the 5th of November and the 5th of November is the last day to which people can submit to the consultation on MP pay, which is of course rising uh, despite everything, despite average pay in this country uh, going down, despite us hitting uh, a really deep recession, despite people going into furlough on 80% of their pay, MPs' pay is going up. And Paul, you've uh, worked something out with the Taxpayers Alliance to propose an alternative way to do things. Can you talk us through that? Yes, um, strictly speaking, for the purposes of a headline, it is the last full day on the 5th of November when you can put it into consultation. I think it closes tomorrow at five o'clock. So you can um, still, this should be out before then. You should still be able to click on the, uh, the uh, story that's been indicated on the right and go through and register your views with the uh, IPSA consultation. I suggest you don't uh, use four-letter words, but actually suggest something broad like perhaps it could be a bit more performance related or in line with average earnings rather than in line with judges and generals which is what the MPs prefer and the MPs have now had consistently inflation busting pay rises for three years in a row and average wages have not gone up and they'll probably be down at the end of this year so they're very much out of touch with their voters. Well, I think it's an important point to raise because they do set up this system called IPSA, which was created in the wake of the expenses scandal to sort of remove any semblance of accountability uh, in terms of wage setting. So now whenever MPs' wages go up, the MPs themselves can honestly say, we didn't decide this, we didn't do this, it's not we well, gov, and then do nothing about bit, it. It's a bit of a cop-out because they set the mandate IPSA and so they, um, they might not be driving the train, but they did set it on the track. And they're so, happily riding it. And they're happily riding the gravy train. Uh, oh, very good. Yeah, being paid £86,000 as their proposal, and then they want their dinner subsidised by minimum wage taxpayers as well. A little bit cheeky. In fact, it's downright offensive. And uh, it's very hard for uh, the public to grasp how they can get away with it and what we can do to stop it. But the, I can tell you it is very popular that we do stop it. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk to MPs, it is quite um, extraordinary how downtrodden they feel. I was speaking to one recently who was saying um, about about the, the, the income that... Um, 
it, it's not actually as much as you think because this particular MP has to go round traips around the constituency and buy things in little shops and, and wave to people. It's like, oh, poor you. You have to buy things from your constituents. Every time I bring this up with MPs, it seems to come back to, oh, yes, but what if you get a mortgage that then you don't get a pay increase large enough to carry on paying it. And I'm just like, oh, my heart breaks for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad I can help pay your excessive mortgage on your large home in or out of the constituency. It is, it is ridiculous. We've had years and years of anti-establishment results in elections and so many MPs still simply don't get it. People don't want you on gilded salaries. Take a pay cut. And some countries, to be fair, have. As you mentioned Jacinda, she made her um, cabinet take a 20% pay cut. It can mm. be done. Parliament is sovereign. If they don't want Ipsa to give them another inflation-busting pay rise, they can stop it very easily. If they were genuinely opposed to the pay rise, then I would like to see a private member's bill come in. And I would be a brave MP to vote down a bill saying that we'll, we'll take a modest pay cut for, for MPs. I, I think that would be a fascinating one to see who's voted for it and who's voted against it. But well, Keir Starmer has indicated that he's against the inflation-busting pay rise. So we look forward to the Labour Party proposing it on an opposition day. <laughs> Marvellous. Well, that's one to watch out for. But um, back, to the, back to the broader COVID news in this country. There was some good news in amongst all of the horrific news that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Um, despite us going into um, this national lockdown now, there is a new way out that looks like it might well um offer some glimmer of hope and it starts on friday and that is these new rapid turnaround 15 minute tests that don't require processing in a biological lab and and don't require um, the amount of money behind the current testing that goes on in this country they're quite cheap they're quite fast and they can be produced um massively and this is going to be taking place in Liverpool from Friday, um, where this big trial of testing just about everyone in school, everyone in the um, health service on the front line and everyone at universities uh, every week and therefore allowing people to live a much more ordinary life in the safe knowledge that they are um, COVID free. So if this can be rapidly uh, scaled up and, and these tests are being produced in the United Kingdom uh, and the logistics are being sorted out by the army. If this can be sorted out in these next four weeks, it, it might well just be the case that this lockdown could be justified if, if by the end of it, we have this massive testing system set up to let us go back to a much higher degree of freedom than we were at before this lockdown. Let's be honest, Tom, what you're really hoping is that bounces Cape Minister outside nightclubs and that you just have to wait in the queue for 15 minutes, get a positive result or negative result, sorry, and off you go to pop around in the, um, in the nightclub. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm hoping. Actually, this so week I was talking... Obvious. <laughs> I was talking to someone who's working on a film set this week, actually, who was saying that they've ordered a whole bunch of these quick turnaround tests for, for a nightclub scene on a movie they're shooting. And all of, the extras, there are, 
no, 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 no. This is a totally normal film. And, and what's going to happen is that um, all these extras are going to take these quick tests beforehand and then they'll all be allowed in and they can just have a normal... Well, if, if you can do that for a movie, surely you can do that in the real world too and we can get back to watching stadiums full for sport games and, and theatres full for, um, for, for shows and nightclubs full for entertainment in the evening. Um, but we should probably move on to some of the other things that went on this week because we um, amplified an expose about Google. What was this about, Paul? Um, over in the States, there's an organization called Veritas that do investigative journalism and they come up with a few crackers. And this one is definitely uh, a, a good hit. It's something that people have been suspicious of for a while. They were over a few drinks with a hidden camera, got a Google executive, an Italian based in London, uh, to admit that he had refused to um, run uh, Conservative Party campaign ads in December 2019. And he blatantly said, look, I'm an Italian, I'm anti-Brexit, I'm not going to help the Conservative Party with Brexit. So that suspicion that people have had that big tech is um, biased against Conservative parties around the world is uh, in a small way confirmed there. Now, Google might say that, oh, this is one exec and he's fired. Or, or, or not, we didn't check that out. But it is kind of beginning to concern me that big tech can uh, censor and skew democracy in a way that I didn't expect. I expected them to be um, neutral because it would be bad for business to be seen one way or the other. Maybe that's not the case. But of course, we are running out of time. So there was one uh, very entertaining story that I personally found hilarious on the site this week. Can you tell us what Jeremy Corbyn's been up to this week, Calgary? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, Corbyn was on holiday in the Isle of Wight. Uh, the Sun uh, ran this, I think, on uh, Sunday. And uh, this was clearly in breach of COVID regulations. But we also got sent a, a video of... Corbyn getting very up close and personal with a fan uh, and recording a video. We were going to run that. And then we looked into the guy and it took me about five minutes to discover that he was, in fact, a fellow suspended member of the Labour Party who was also accused of anti-Semitism. Corbyn does manage to attract them like flies. The local Labour branch secretary was less than happy that, of course, Corbyn came and you know, befriended him, of all people, spent the best part of an hour with him. Uh, the one positive Corbyn did get out of it uh, was that this member was a very, very fond nudist, and he was, at least at the time, fully clothed uh, when Corbyn met the suspended member. He also self-defines as neurodivergent, which I think, in other words, means he's actually loony. He is the loony left. <laughs> exactly, yes. Amazing. The stories write themselves. Well, I'm afraid that's all that we've got time for this week. So thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Guido Talks. We will catch you next Friday for what I'm sure is going to be a very exciting week of lockdown where all of the news is going to happen. Um, but until then, thanks for listening and or thanks for watching and goodbye. Bye.